It's science for the people. This is Direct Current. Welcome to Direct Current. I'm Matt Dozier. And I'm Sarah Harmon. Lately, it feels like weather has been in the news a lot. Aside from the usual seasonal changes in temperature, rain, snowfall, there seems to be a noticeable shift happening. I'm talking about bigger, more extreme weather events, stuff that was once considered so rare that scientists called them hundred-year storms, now becoming a staple of our daily headlines. But even though it feels like storms and weather are intensifying, are they really? It turns out, yes. Scientists are noting an increase in frequency of extreme weather events around the world. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, weather that can wreak havoc, like heat waves and big storms, is in fact happening more frequently, which makes it critically important for us to better understand and predict what's coming, so that communities can be better prepared. Good news is, there are people who study weather in these extreme events. They look at big storms, both past and present, to build computer models that simulate what the future might look like. I would argue I've been in the field since 2005, which is when I went and started undergrad. Although if you ask my parents, they'd say, you know, I was the kind of oddball that liked watching the the weather channel instead of watching cartoons certain times when I was a kid. That's Colin Zarzicki. He studied meteorology and environmental engineering before working at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado. Now he's an assistant professor at Penn State University. I really, really liked hurricanes. And actually, the Weather Channel, 10 minutes till the top of the hour, so, you know, like 11.50, they did what they called the tropical update. And I was kind of really fascinated by these storms. Part of it was kind of the maps and the satellite images. And it's kind of amazing to me that we were getting these images from space of these potential storms, and we were trying to forecast where they were going to go. And, you know, I kind of found myself, you know, almost like looking up at the clock being like, oh, I need to go stop doing what I'm doing now and go catch this update, see what's what's going on with the, the hurricanes. And, you know, that's really kind of kicked off a passion of mine to, to get into the field. Since the early 2000s, the number of scientific studies that investigate the connection between extreme weather and climate change has gone up. We know a lot about weather and we know a lot about the climate but we still don't fully understand how the two pieces or models fit together. Speaking of, we wanted to take a minute to talk about something pretty basic, but key to understanding this story, the difference between weather and climate. See, they're closely related, but they aren't the same thing. Weather is made up of individual events. We say, what's the weather like today? It's different in different places and changes throughout the day. Climate, on the other hand, describes what the weather is like in one place over a longer stretch of time. When we talk about climate, we're usually using things like average statistics. Things like temperatures, rainfall, wind, over a span of years, usually decades or hundreds of years. Now, there's no question here about whether global warming leads to greater extremes in weather. It does. That part is settled. But when a record-breaking heat wave scorches the Midwest or unprecedented rainfall inundates Southern California, people often ask, did climate change cause this? Some scientists say the answer to that question is more nuanced than yes or no, black or white. Colin is one of them. And instead of saying this hurricane happened because of climate change, he prefers to think of it this way. Yeah, this hurricane existed and we had 20% more rain than we would have had if this hurricane had appeared in in 1850. And that component is due to, to anthropogenic climate change. That's a really important thing for us to get a handle on as we try to protect lives and property from these increasingly nasty weather events. Because in Colin's example, 
That 20% increase in precipitation can mean the difference between minor damage and, say, levees breaking. Generally, when we think of extremes, we think of something that's pretty rare and pretty consequential for society. So, you know, if it's something that happens, you know, once a week, then society is likely pretty prepared for that. But if it's something that's kind of big and that we're talking about happening, you know, once or twice a year, or even some of the extremes that I'm really interested in, which are more of these like once every 10 or once every 100 year type events. But those are also the things that really have kind of that big generational impact. So in order to get ahead of these generational storms and droughts and all the other weather-related disasters waiting to happen, you need a computer model. Something that can crunch up all the information we know about how the atmosphere works and spit out a prediction, or rather lots and lots of predictions, of what's to come. The better our climate models, the clearer picture we'll have of what to expect, weather-wise. That can help us identify the biggest risks and opportunities to mitigate damage ahead of time. When it comes to better preparing in advance for these types of events, Colin says we have to take a dual-faceted approach. We have to look backward at the historical data about weather events in the past, and we have to project into the future with modeling fueled by supercomputers. So let's start off by talking about the side of the coin that investigates the past. We kind of start to think back maybe to pre-industrial times, so thinking back to like our great-great-great-grandparents or something like that, but even looking since like maybe the 1950s, 1960s. The quality of historical weather data that's available for Colin and his team to analyze varies quite a bit. As you can imagine, getting reliable, quality data from 100 years ago is pretty challenging. There are records, but they're sparse. As technology became more sophisticated, local airports began tracking things like temperature and rainfall, which are useful data points. Then about 40 years ago, satellites started collecting all sorts of weather-related data. So the team brings together all of these pieces of information, and basically they search through the archives to compare extreme weather events from way back when to today. And what you can actually do is you can look at the ratio. How many record highs do you have? How many record lows do you have? If our climate wasn't changing, that ratio would actually stay constant. You know, what we've seen historically, especially over the last couple of decades, is record highs are rapidly outpacing record lows, which also gives us some confidence that we're seeing this trend line in both the temperature, but also the extremes associated with that temperature. The other side of this research coin in Colin's two-pronged approach is focused on what's yet to unfold. By building models based on our physical understanding of Earth's system, Colin and his team are working towards being able to make prognostications or projections of what we can expect to happen in the future. At the end of the day, it's just boiled down to a bunch of computer code. What we do is we kind of put all these pieces of code together. I like to tell my students it's somewhat like putting a bunch of Lego blocks together and kind of creating this, this big, what we call a model. And then we essentially run the model. Running the model, as Colin says, isn't as straightforward as pressing a button or flipping a switch. Instead, it's like rolling dice hundreds or thousands of times and logging each outcome. But the information they're using is so much more complex, Colin's team runs it on a supercomputer. You can think of a supercomputer like hundreds or thousands of laptops collectively working on the same problem at the same time. Each laptop is given a little piece of the problem, like what's going on in the Great Lakes region. And then, when brought together, the collective results simulate what the surface of the Earth would be like at that future point in time. What the model is really doing is it's kind of simulating the weather over and over and over and over again, you know, in many cases for many years or many decades or even many centuries. And we can run 
different iterations of the model to kind of look at different sets of weather patterns, different rolls of the dice, you might say. And then what we essentially try to do is we try to use those results to say something about how we would expect extreme weather events to change. If the idea of a bunch of numbers on a computer swirling together to form a picture of future weather seems a bit mm, abstract, well, you're not wrong. But these calculations can reveal patterns. So Colin and his team track down historical weather data, write code, build the models, and then ship it all off to a supercomputer to crunch the numbers. Of course, even that is kind of oversimplifying. There's a lot of back and forth to make sure everything looks right. And then the output that they get back from the supercomputer is, frankly, super overwhelming. And then essentially what the supercomputer does is it prints out petabytes of information. And this is like a tremendously, you know, massive number, like, you know, you and I are used to thinking about megabytes in terms of what we can send through email or maybe gigabytes for our hard drives. And this is orders of magnitude more than this. You know, this would require thousands of external hard drives to be able to store it if I wanted to store it here in my office. For reference, a petabyte is one million gigabytes. The models Colin works with basically report the weather every single hour for the next hundred years. From there, the team has to figure out how to mine the data for the important stuff. And we write software code that goes in, you know, like a claw machine, like something you'd play with in an arcade, and goes in and extracts those extreme weather events. Because like I said, they don't happen that often, but that's what we're really interested in. So how do you go about doing that? Last time I checked, most research labs don't have the space or the budget for thousands of laptops running all at once. Instead, Colin taps into the supercomputing strength of the Department of Energy. DOE and the national labs fund and operate supercomputers across the country, which researchers like Colin can apply to use. Once a proposal is approved, the researchers can then build and run their models from afar. A lot of our research really relies heavily on supercomputing capabilities offered by the Department of Energy. We have a, a supercomputer here on campus and we use it a lot for testing and maybe doing a little bit of data analysis, but it's orders of magnitude smaller than the kind of computing capacity at, at some of these DOE centers. And we really, really want to make the most efficient use of, of computing. We want to really simulate this these future climates uh, with as much realism as possible. We want to be able to see as many of these extreme weather events. We really need to leverage that state-of-the-art, cutting-edge supercomputing capacity, which is, is offered by the Department of Energy. Colin's supercomputer of choice is called Perlmutter. It's in California and a part of the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center. Say that five times fast. Also in California is Alan Rhodes. He's a research scientist with Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and he's one of those climate modelers who spend a lot of time investigating some of the extreme weather scenarios that Colin mentioned. A lot of my work is sitting in front of a computer and accessing the NERSC supercomputing system, which we have here locally at Berkeley Lab. And basically that's racks and racks of blinking lights that crunch all of the mathematical equations of atmospheric motion and thermodynamics and everything that are in our Earth system models in a really fast way and consistent way. Alan has been working in climate modeling for a decade. Like Colin, his fascination with atmospheric science started early on in his life. He grew up near a large mountain range in California called the Sierra Nevada, and he remembers a big storm in the late 1990s that dumped a lot of water on the West Coast. For Alan, the effects of the storm were so memorable, it helped to spark a fascination, and eventually, 
an academic path in weather and the environment. I think I had a lot of interest in doing observations and going on expeditions, for example, in my undergrad to far off places. But for some reason, the allure of the crystal ball of earth system models or climate models to look at the future and what it might hold for us, I think that got me excited about being an earth system modeler and working here at Berkeley Lab. Allen focuses on studying precipitation-related weather events, specifically atmospheric rivers. These are features in the atmosphere that move large amounts of water vapor from the tropics to the poles. They're like rivers, but in the sky. And when they make landfall, they can unload a ton of precipitation, either as rain or snow, and are largely responsible for most of the major flood events on the West Coast. These features are about three kilometers deep, about 850 kilometers wide, and thousands of kilometers long. So they're they're even larger than some of the biggest rivers in the world. And depending on the, how extreme they are, some of them have been considered to be you know, on the order of about 7 to 15 Mississippi rivers worth of water vapor transport. To do this type of research, Alan spends a lot of his time writing computer code to fuel the models that run through all sorts of hypothetical weather and climate patterns. He gets data from field observations, gathered by people who go out into the mountains to measure snow and rainfall and more recently, from things like satellites and airplanes. But despite the recent advances that remote and automated technology can offer, ultimately, Alan says the amount of data points available isn't enough to run the models. So they use more coding to fill in the blanks. And once they have these more complete data sets, they use the computer models to answer questions like, What if we were to model atmospheric rivers in present climate versus in a pre-industrial or if, you know, greenhouse gases hadn't occurred? Or what if we warmed the planet by one and a half degrees or two or three, which are in line with some of the IPCC intergovernmental panel climate change warming levels of interest from a policy perspective? And so a lot of my work is kind of working in the virtual world, how atmospheric rivers and virtual mountain snowpack might respond to these different levels of warming. As of spring 2023, when this podcast was recorded, atmospheric rivers had been dominating headlines on the west coast of the U.S. In January alone, a whopping nine atmospheric rivers inundated the area. So Alan's interested in how well the modeling systems can represent these kinds of events, even as they're happening. He's also learning about the downstream impacts for water managers in drought-prone places like California and Colorado. Water management in the West is very complicated. We get a lot of booms and busts. We're constantly in between flooding and drought. And so a lot of the work that I do is trying to interrogate why that's occurring and how those occurrences of floods and droughts might become amplified or more persistent in different warming worlds. And I think the tool that I use to, to do that and rely upon are these earth system models that I keep mentioning. Allen is part of a DOE-funded project called HyperFacets. It's a collaboration between a dozen research institutions that aims to get cutting-edge modeling data into the hands of the people who need it the most. People like water resource managers in Southern California, for example. I think it's important because it allows us to be proactive about changing our management of our current infrastructure or think about how, would, how do we scale up other water management strategies that might be more responsive or resilient in a warmer world where you get bigger, badder atmospheric rivers, maybe less snowpack or flashier snowmelt or more potential for flood events, or maybe you have persistent low to no snow conditions where you, you can't rely on mountain snowpack anymore as a natural reservoir. And so I think our models allow us to really be proactive about thinking about those things and doing it in a, in a way that's not too simplified or can maybe provide us with physics-informed kind of estimates of what those plausible futures might be. 
We may not be able to pull out a crystal ball and predict future extreme weather events like Alan dreamed about when he was younger. But with this type of collaborative research, we may be one step closer. And for Colin, all of the looking backward and projecting into the future is worth it to help minimize the destruction caused by extreme weather. What I'm really interested in is being able to provide some degree of information to society about how we want to prepare and harden ourselves against these extreme weather phenomenon so that we can preserve life and property, essentially. At the end of the day, that's really our goal, to make sure that people are staying safe, that we're keeping property as buffered and hardened as possible against these impacts. But we can't plan and we can't think about how we're going to do that unless we, we have some understanding of what extreme weather is going to look like in the future. That's it for another episode of Direct Current. Thank you to our guests, Alan Rhodes and Colin Zarzicki, for lending their expertise. If you'd like to learn more about the science of understanding and predicting extreme weather, check out our show notes. You can find those and all of our other episodes at energy.gov slash podcast. We also wanted to give a big shout out to Ashley Papp and our Office of Science. Ashley was a huge help in reporting and writing this episode. Direct Current is produced by me, Matt Dozier. Music and sound editing assistance by Michael Stewart. And our episode artwork is by me, Sarah Harmon. If you've listened this far, you should know that this is my last episode as host and producer of the podcast. Making this show has been one of the most fun and rewarding parts of my job since we launched it in 2016. And I'm really proud of the stories we've been able to tell and the important work that we've gotten to highlight. It means a lot that so many people have shared the show and gotten in touch with us. Your feedback has been greatly appreciated. And I hope you'll keep listening, because there's lots more to come in Season 4 and beyond. This is a production of the U.S. Department of Energy, published from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. And as always, thank you so, so much for listening.